part two. <laughs> Got done to the physical therapy. Let's head right over to this report that's just in rough draft phase. You guys are the first people I am showing this to. So that's the benefit, one of the benefits of being a subscriber to the Rebel Capitalist channel. And I'm not going over all this. I'm going over a major component of it to illustrate why I think there's a different type of crash that could be even worse than the dollar crashing. Uh, but when we have the full report, you're going to have to read it. It's going to be free. I won't even ask for the email. We'll probably just post it on, on the blog. But let's get right back to where we left off in part one of the last video before I had to leave to physical therapy. Okay, Josh, do you see the report? Yep. Perfect. Okay, so just in case you didn't tune in for part one, we'll just do a very quick review where we left off. Basically, you've got the dollar debt outside of the United States. Uh, the dollar debt was created to create dollar uh, currency units, which are deposit liabilities, commercial bank deposit liabilities. So if we have an aggregate balance sheet outside of the United States, I won't go back to, you just see the bottom uh, up here, just take my word on it. We've got 50 and 50. So uh, it's supposed to be trillion. We put B, again, rough draft guys. So just use your imagination. So outside the United States, assets 50 trillion, because those are the currency units, the dollars that exist on balance sheets outside the United States. We're taking the aggregate balance sheet. But then those dollars were created by lending them into existence. So there's also 50 trillion worth of dollar liabilities. In other words, loans that have to be paid back in the future. That could be 30 years. It could be two days. Okay. So now what we got to look at are the dollar, the dollars on the aggregate balance sheet inside of the United States. We've got to compartmentalize. So inside of the United States, we've got, we'll just say 20 trillion and 20 trillion. And these dollars were created the exact same way. They're lent into existence. So that asset uh, also has an offsetting liability. So now what we did through that thought experiment is we said, okay, let's assume that Saudi Arabia no longer wants dollars. They're de-dollarizing because they're fed up with the United States. The U.S. has used the dollar as a weapon for too long, and they're just not putting up with it anymore. And finally, Brazil, Russia, China, South Africa, etc., India, they're going to come together. They're going to form their own currency until the United States to pound sand. We are not playing your game anymore. So they have, let's just say, $10 trillion. And what are you going to do with it? Well, one of the things that you could do, and this is usually the narrative, is you take those $10 trillion and they're going to go right back to the United States. Why? Because they just want dollar assets. And you know, probably don't want treasuries. So, hey, let me buy a few buildings, or in that case, a lot of buildings, <laughs> a lot of real estate, stocks, etc. So those $10 trillion come into the United States. They're no longer circulating outside of the United States to service the $50 billion debt, $50 trillion debt, right? So what happens? You, you have this imbalance where outside you have 40 and 50. Inside now, instead of 20 and 20, you have 30 and 20. So then we go right to where we left off in the last video. As a result, now I'm reading the report. As a result, there's an undersupply of dollars outside the U.S. relative to demand to pay debt oversupply of dollars inside the U.S. Adding insult to injury, the maturity of the debt inside the U.S. is likely much longer. As an example, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Giving the oversupply of dollars more time 
to put downward pressure on the dollar versus not other currencies, but domestic goods and services, i.e. create consumer price inflation here in the good old U.S. of A. So uh, why? So that demand, let's say it's a balloon payment 30 years out in the future, you can do whatever you want to with those dollars in the interim. They can circulate, they can chase goods and services. uh, And that's the velocity that I was talking about that creates the downward pressure in the dollar, the consumer price inflation. Whereas outside of the United States, let's take it to an extreme and say that all the dollar debt is due next week. Now, all of a sudden, the velocity is very, very low because a lot fewer of those entities are going to sell the dollars on their balance sheet because they know that next Tuesday, they're going to need them to pay off that debt. See the difference? And that's why I say in the next paragraph that shorter maturity of debt is key, absolute key that you understand that concept. The value of the dollar would likely shoot up higher versus other currencies. So because of that mismatch that I'm talking about because of shorter term debt or the shorter maturity, but that's not all. Odds are Jerome Powell would raise rates to combat the growing inflation due to dollars flooding into the U.S. Makes sense, right? Got $10 trillion coming in. Now you got an oversupply. Now you got more currency units chasing goods and services. Inflation goes right back up to 5 6 7 8% headline CPI. So is Jerome Powell going to just do nothing? No, likely, he's probably going to raise rates. And I don't think they really control rates. But that would put upward pressure on yields, even at the long end of the curve, temporarily. But I think the, the future growth and in inflation expectations from the CPI going up would take the curve up, regardless of what Jerome Powell was doing, and, and would even take the front end up. So getting back to the report, if Jerome Powell is increasing interest rates, what is that going to do to the entities outside of the United States that are trying to roll over that debt? Remember, I don't think many of them could, but let's just say that they're trying to. They're going to have to roll it over at a higher interest rate. So what does that do to the burden of the debt? If they owe a million dollars and they, the loan was originated at 2%, but when they roll it over, now all of a sudden they owe a million dollars plus 10%. Well, now all of a sudden that becomes more burdensome. The debt payments are higher. And if it's a balloon payment, you got to come up with a lot more of those dollars when the debt matures. So like we said, the debt burden is becoming more overwhelming. And let's remember, while this is happening, the dollar is likely increasing in value relative to the currencies of the cash flow they're receiving or the assets on their balance sheet. So so they're having to sell more and more XYZ currency or XYZ currency asset to buy the amount of dollars they need and at the amount they need and remember the excuse me. And remember the amount they need is increasing due to the higher rates. So, again, they've got uh, they they borrowed a million at two percent. Now they borrow a million at ten percent. But when that debt comes due, they're like, oh shoot, because instead of a million dollars or a million dollars plus two percent, so let's just say, uh, you know, whatever the math is, uh, let's just say it's twenty percent to make it easy. So one point two million. Now all of a sudden. I've got to pay 1.5 million. Okay, well, I don't have those dollars. So what am I going to do if I don't have that cash flow? If I'm not, if the banks aren't willing to roll over the debt again, okay, I've got to sell something on my balance sheet. But now I have to sell the equivalent, of, let's say pesos, of 1.5 million as opposed to 1.2. And oh, by the way, in the interim, those pesos have depreciated. They've gone down in value. So at 1.2, maybe I had to sell let's just say 100 million pesos. But now all of a sudden at 1.5 plus higher interest rates, 
I've got to sell 200 million pesos. That's what we're talking about here with the debt becoming more and more burdensome. Here is where we go into kind of the knock-on effects. I start by saying, unfortunately, it gets much worse. What we haven't discussed yet is the asset loan that was created by the banks when the entities borrowed the money and received the asset and loan liability. This loan liability of the entities are assets of the banks. So I'm going to go ahead and put uh, balance sheets up here when we have the final. So you guys have a visual, but you guys know how this works, right? If we have the entity, you take on the debt. So now they've got 50 trillion of assets because those are currency units that they now have that didn't exist before. But then on the liability side, they have to pay that 50 trillion back. So those are 50 trillion worth of loans. But what happens to the bank's balance sheet? You see, now the bank's balance sheet on the liability side has the dollars that were just created that are assets of the entities. But on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet, they now have that loan that is a liability of the entity that just borrowed the money. So why does this matter? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Let's get right back to the report. If rates go up, the value of banks' loan assets go down if they're not hedged properly. You say, George, how does that work? I'll give you a specific example. It's called Silicon Valley Bank. So what they had is, let's say, a billion dollars worth of liabilities and a billion dollars of assets. But then they said, oh, wow, interest rates have gone up. Therefore, the value of these treasuries that I have, because they're interest rate sensitive, have gone down because there's an inverse relationship between the yield and the price. So yields go up, the value price of those treasuries goes down to a point where they've got they still have the billion dollars of the liabilities, but now they only have 500 million worth of assets. That's not a good position for a bank to be in. <laughs> That's called insolvent. That's called their bust. Boom. Bye-bye. And now they could make it a little longer, but then what happens is all these liabilities get transferred to other banks. Like, oh, no, we're out, we're out, we're out, the depositors. And then what happens, Silicon Valley Bank tries to sell those assets to settle up with these other banks at a certain point, they just don't have any more assets to sell. They wave the white flag, they're done. So my point is you have to look at all this, these deflationary pressures as a result of all those dollars flooding back into the United States, the deflationary bust pressures outside. Inside, we've got consumer price inflation, right? Because the imbalances that we talked about before. But then when Jerome Powell raises rates, it makes it harder. It makes the debt burden even more difficult to service, which takes us straight into a doom loop. But then the banks are lending or are even less willing to lend to those entities that have to roll over that debt because the value of their assets are going down and they're tightening their belt because the perceived counterparty risk is skyrocketing, right? And at the same time, if this liquidity dries up, then what happens to the cash flow of those entities that need the dollars? Because remember, there's three ways to service debt or to get the dollars to service the debt. You can earn the dollars, you can buy the dollars, or you can borrow the dollars. But if the banks are having problems, because these interest rates are going up and they're dramatically impacting the asset side of their balance sheet, those entities that have to make those loan payments back to the banks will struggle in all three of those ways. Likely their cash flow goes down, the, the, the dollar payments become more burdensome if they're to sell assets on their balance sheet to get those, and the banks are less willing to roll over the debt. So this means that those entities will start to default. Well, if they start to default, then what happens to the banks themselves? They, tightening, they tighten lending even further, which reduces dollar cash flow because the global economy is slowing down more and more and more. 
Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Oh, but wait, there's more. Let's not forget, we are talking about the asset side of the bank's balance sheet decreasing and causing uh, an environment where they could likely go bust. But the assets of the entities are liabilities of the banks, just like the assets of the bank are liabilities of the entity. See how this becomes very incestuous? <laughs> For lack of a better word. So what ends up happening is that the banks go bust. What happens to the assets of the entity? They're gone. They're gone. And I'd like to point out, actually, let me go to the next paragraph because I point this out here. So as you can tell, outside the United States, this would be like a 1930s style global Great Depression. Uh, because let's not forget all currencies, even the currencies held by the entities that sold dollars are liabilities of the bank. So let's rewind and go back to the Saudis that said, oh, we don't want these dollars anymore. We're going to send these $10 trillion back in the United States to buy properties and to buy shares. Okay, great. But those entities most likely still have Russian rubles. They still have Chinese yuan. They still have Brazilian real. They still have whatever BRICS currency that they just created. They're still going to have those assets on their balance sheet. Fantastic. But those assets aren't red or blue pieces of paper. Those assets are other commercial bank deposit liabilities. See where I'm going with this? Let's proceed. So if the banks who have dollar debt-based assets go bust, they'll likely bring down the banks with no dollar debt liabilities. Why? The global monetary system is simply a network of banks and financial institutions that deal in many currencies. They're highly levered and don't usually settle in cash or bank reserves, but in IOUs. So the assets of bank A are the liabilities of bank B, and the assets of bank B are the liabilities of bank C, and the assets of bank C are the liabilities of bank A. <laughs> no matter what currencies they're using, even if they don't have dollars on their balance sheet. So if bank A goes bust, then bank C doesn't have any uh, assets, right? If bank B goes bust, then Aiden, or, or you know, however this, uh, this relationship, this network, you see, you get one problem in there, what I'm trying to explain. You get one problem, and that's going to impact all the other banks because at the end of the day, all the balance sheets are, are pretty much tied together. So if you have one of those balance sheets, you know what it's like? It's, it's I, I don't know, computer code or whatever, but I would assume that if you write this computer code, that it's got to be perfect. If you get one error in there, the computer is just going to spit it back out, right? Or it, it's like an engine. If you have one critical error, then the engine is not going to work, period, because everything has to function properly. And it's the exact same thing in the monetary system, regardless of what type of currency 
your deposit liabilities are denominated in. So due to the fact it's, I'm going back to the report, due to the fact it's highly interconnected, the, uh, due to the fact, basically, I think I got a typo here. The, uh, the, the banks are highly interconnected. The assets of one bank are the liabilities of another and vice versa. On a side note, this would likely lead to a central planners moving the commercial bank deposit liabilities onto the balance sheet of the central banks. You guys know what that's called, central bank digital currency. And they would do this in an effort to avoid the deflationary bust. I think that's most people's base case in that environment. The banks and the financial institutions understand these doom loop dynamics very well. If some schmuck on YouTube gets it, trust me, Jamie Dimon gets it <laughs> very well, which reduces the probability of the dollar losing reserve status to begin with. In other words, oddly, the potential level of devastation caused by the global, the global dollar monetary network fracturing, its fragility, in essence, makes it stronger. This is why I was saying this whole thing is so counterintuitive. It's just like, does the sun rotate around the earth or the earth around the sun? Well, obviously, we know that it's the Earth rotating around the sun, but that is completely counterintuitive. Why? Because you can see the sun moving in the sky, for heaven's sakes. Now, I want to point out that obviously I'm using extremes to illustrate how the system works. It's highly unlikely that 10 trillion comes in, boom, all at once or within the span of a month. But you have to realize that the same dynamics would be applicable even if it was 1 trillion coming into the United States. It's just that it would apply to a little lesser degree. So if we zoom out and you, and you even assume that there's going to be 100 million coming in at a time, right? Let's say every 30 days or something because uh, the dollar demand is going down. Uh, okay, fine. But you just compound that over, let's say, six months and you eventually get to a point where this becomes a serious, serious problem. And the irony is that Americans will be sitting there thinking the dollar is collapsing domestically, while at the same time, the dollar is skyrocketing against other currencies, creating potentially a, a global deflationary bust, a global Great Depression. Now, for those of you who uh, would, uh, would like this, maybe, maybe you're kind of following what I'm saying, uh, that's one reason I'm doing the report. We're going to have diagrams in there and charts and everything. So you can read it multiple times and just take it at your own pace. And, you know, hopefully I'll have something set up to where we can, you can ask questions and go back and forth. Um, because once you're able to read it and see the diagrams, even if you disagree with it, I'm not asking everyone to agree with me, but even if you disagree with it, you'll understand the monetary system much better. Because even if you disagree with my conclusions, the, the, the way the system is set up, that's not really debatable. It's, it, it kind of is what it is. I, I'm not giving you my opinion on how the system works. That's how the system works. Just <laughs> period, end of story, right? So now let's look at maybe a different example, uh, uh, illustrating the same concepts. Because maybe, and since this is more US-centric, maybe this will kind of click for people that didn't really click with the report that I went over. 
So we're going to go over to Twitter. And by the way, if you didn't know, Trump just launched a new line of sneakers. Can't wait for that. <laughs> Who doesn't want gold sneakers with the American flag on them? I must admit, though, whoever designed them did a pretty good job. Okay, so here's my good buddy, Bob Murphy. And he poses this question because what he's doing here is he's trying to say, okay, I, I get what you're saying about the lack of demand outside of the United States, um, you know, potentially causing the dollar to go up. But let, let's think about this the other way because it really doesn't make sense. This is Bob's position. He says that, uh, do you think the same mechanism holds domestically? Suppose American investors keep listening to talk radio, become convinced they need to reduce exposure to USD, but there are a lot of dollar-denominated debts in the U.S. I would say, Bob, you, you got to rephrase that, buddy. Uh, every single dollar in the United States represents $1 of dollar-denominated demand <laughs> or dollar-denominated uh, debts outside of the, the green pieces of paper. And if you want to get super, super technical, you could say, okay, George, if a bank buys from a non-bank entity, like a treasury or something, that is uh, currency units that are created that um, were not created with debt. That is true, but if you take that to its logical conclusion, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right here, but if you take that to its logical conclusion, the net result is, is still the same. So anyway, so does that mean if most Americans try to get rid of their dollars, the dollar strengthens? So this is a fantastic thought experiment, right? Because let's just assume that this is what's going to happen, and all of the Americans are going to say, dollars, I don't want these dollars anymore. No way. I'm going to buy gold. I'm listening to my good buddy Peter Schiff, and everything he says makes sense. I'm going to dump these dollars, and I'm buying gold. So now, George, how on earth could you argue the dollar would strengthen in that environment? And if you can't argue that the dollar would strengthen in that environment, how on earth can you argue that if demand goes down outside of the United States, the dollar would strengthen. Again, it's a fantastic thought experiment. I'm so glad that, that Bob uh, asked. That's one of my favorite things about Bob. I mean, obviously, he's a great guy, super smart. But he, he's, he's, he, he always is trying to figure things out you know, and, and actually come to the truth and, and understand other people's views. And um, you know, that's, that's what makes him so great. But anyway, okay. So Bob Murphy asks a great question. The thought experiment below will hopefully help people better understand the monetary system, even they disagree with the conclusion. Let's start by stating the debt in this hypothetical would be short-term, maturing in less than one year. All dollars were lent into existence. Banks stop lending dollars because they don't really want them on their balance sheet. Why? Because there's a mismatch between their assets and their liabilities. Customers start stop borrowing dollars or are borrowing fewer dollars because they want XYZ currency or they want gold something like that. Or maybe the store owners want gold or they want Bitcoin. They just don't want those dollars anymore. No way. We know that though that's a, a sinking ship. We know that all fiat currency's intrinsic value is zero. Anyway, getting back to this. And there are no bailouts or government interventions. Why am I setting up these parameters? Because this is how the euro dollar system works. Bail out a, a bank in the Bahamas, something like that, or some corporation in uh, Colombia, has dollar-denominated debt. They're not going to get bailed out. So, and then what we said earlier, you got to remember that most of that debt is short-term. And then uh, we have to assume that dollar demand is going down outside of the United States, and that's where we come to this this thought experiment. So let's simplify this. I think you guys are going to get a kick out of uh, how we kind of break this down. And let's assume that 
Americans are broken down into four groups based on their balance sheet. And I admit, we're going to lose some accuracy here, but you're going to still, it's all about the concept. So group number one has no dollars and no debt, like a college student, Moody the Millennial. So if we switch to gold or Bitcoin or whatever, if everyone's dumping dollars, they're not going to be dumping dollars because they don't have any dollars. (laughs) They don't have any dollars to dump. Okay, but they have no debt. Group number two, they have dollars. Let's say they've got $100,000 in their checking account or something like that, and they have no debt. They've been listening to Dave Ramsey for the last 20 years. Okay. And then group three, they have dollars, but they also have debt. See? And then the fourth group has no dollars, but unfortunately, they do have debt. Okay. Now you could say, okay, George, well, what if uh, they have a million dollars of the debt and 500,000 of dollars? You know, where would they come in here? Well, that's basically the no dollars with debt. Why? Because if it's short term debt, they're going to take the 500, they're going to pay off half of the loan, but then they're going to be right back where they started with $0 and 500,000, or they're going to be basically in the same position, maybe not exactly where they started. So uh, even if you have kind of different um, setups, or even if you have uh, groups with with little different situations, the fact that they've got to pay off the debt very quickly puts them in one of these four categories. Okay. So group one, they take no action because like I said, they have no dollars, they have no debt. A large percentage of group two buys stocks, real estate, gold. Now we're, we're, again, this is a thought experiment, guys. If we're saying that if if most Americans wanted to dump their dollars, we're assuming that there's still going to be a group uh, that's going to want to sell those stocks because they want dollars for whatever reason. Okay. Then group three pays their debt with their dollars because it matures quickly, soon, which means, let's think think about this. This is where you got to take kind of a, a mental leap here. If group three pays their debt because it's maturing soon, that means the only dollars that now exist are equivalent to the debt group four owes, right? Because remember, let's go back to the groups. All of these dollars that are on the balance sheet of two and three were lent into existence. So if group three takes all their dollars to pay the debt, those dollars disappear. So since all of the dollars were lent into existence, there's one group with dollars, that'd be group two, but they ha- but group four has the exact same amount of equivalent debt. But actually it's worse because that assumes they're just paying back principal. But let's remember there's paying, they're paying back interest. So the principal plus interest would exceed the total amount of dollars that exist. Okay, getting back to the thought experiment. Group four then has to sell everything they own to make their debt payments. And this assumes the remaining members of group two want anything that group four owns. (laughs) Who knows? And are willing to part with 100% of the dollars they have because group four needs 100%. And plus, actually, they need 110, 120%. Obviously, group four will have to start defaulting on their loan payments. Those loans are bank assets. They'll go bust. Since all dollars were bank liabilities, as the banks go bust, the dollars group two had disappear because all those dollars were were just simply commercial bank liabilities. So if there's no more banks, there's no more commercial bank liabilities, and therefore there's no more money. It's all gone. So basically it looks like some combination of GFC, Great Depression times 100. The world's largest deflationary bust would likely strengthen the dollar against domestic goods and services assets, in my opinion. That's a pretty safe bet. Against other currencies, likely because the deflationary bust would have global systemic risk. So again, guys, and I'm, I admit I am taking this to an extreme here, but the concept is the same. 
And and even if you disagree with this conclusion, if you if you understand the principles at play, you're going to have a much better idea of how the monetary system actually functions and why that's important is because then you're going to be able to predict or at least understand the probabilities of inflation, deflation, dollar crashing or dollar not crashing, all of these things applies to what we're saying. You know, tell me one thing in global macro right now that isn't impacted by the monetary system. Just name one. The answer is there isn't one. Everything is impacted by the monetary system. Why? Because money is one half of every single transaction, whether we like it or not. Currency. So now a lot of you may be asking, well, George, okay, okay. I, I get what you're saying. This makes sense, but something has to be wrong with the way you're describing this or else no country would ever have consumer price inflation, and they definitely wouldn't have hyperinflation. Let's look at this. How do we see massive inflation in Argentina? I would argue because their government started creating pesos that weren't lent into existence. You see, when the Argentina had dollar-denominated debt, all of a sudden they can't pay the dollar-denominated debt. I mean, this is a perfect example of the report. So what did they have to do? Well, they, they had to come up with some sort of cash flow. They didn't have any cash flow. So what do they do? They literally printed pesos, pieces of paper. Those pieces of paper were not lent into existence. Therefore, demand doesn't control supply. Therefore, when those pesos no longer have demand, they just pile up in a corner in some sort of wheelbarrow. You see the difference? Night and day. So what ends up happening is more and more currency units are created to buy or to buy the dollars needed to pay off the debt. And that increases the supply. And at the same time, demand goes down but demand going down doesn't decrease the supply because the currency units weren't lent into existence to begin with. They were printed. See, it goes back to that concept that if I lend you a dollar, I didn't create money. If you lend me that dollar back or if you uh, pay that dollar back, you didn't destroy money. But if I'm a bank and I add $1 to your checking account, I've created money. And if you pay me that dollar back the next day, you have destroyed money. Getting back to this. Or how about the high inflation of the 1970s? Well, that was bank generated. But what we have to realize is that was because there was more demand for dollars, <laughs> not less. So the banks saw opportunities. So they were creating more and more and more of these loans. But these loans weren't due in one week. These loans were due 30 years, 10 years, 15 years. And therefore, those currency units had a lot more time to circulate. See, and then what I say here in the last sentence, there's no 30-year loan or 30-year fixed rate loan in the euro dollar system. So the bottom line is uh, the biggest mistake where, where this all stems from is people uh, looking at commercial deposit liabilities as though they're green pieces of paper. That, that's the big problem here. And when you can compartmentalize those, you, re you realize that this is just a night and day difference. Or like I said here, it's literally the difference between the outcome being deflationary and the outcome being inflationary. So what is the black swan event that I was talking about? What are these doom loops that I was talking about? Well, actually, it's not that the dollar crashes down, but it's that the dollar crashes up. I think what we should really be worried about is a melt up in the dollar, not a crash of the dollar. I would argue that if the dollar, let's just use DXY as a proxy. If the, it's around 104 right now, if it goes down to 80, that would be fantastic the global economy. That would be amazing. That would not be devastating. That would be a very, very, very good thing. <coughs> now, it might start to become bad for the United States 
or for a lot of these banks that uh, lent dollars and whatnot, if it goes down to, let's say, 60, 50, right? But it wouldn't be near as bad as if the dollar were to go to 150. Not even close. Not even close. I would take the dollar at 50 as far as the global economy and the U.S. economy, for that matter, uh, any day of the week. It's, it's, it's a complete no-brainer. I would take the dollar at 50 versus the dollar at 150. Because at 150, I mean, you've got a scenario there where it's, it's Mad Max. You've you got a scenario where the, the only thing that has purchasing power is ammunition and Jack Daniels. And if the dollar is at 50, that's, that scenario is very unlikely. The, the, the world, there'd be some hiccups here and there, but the world would pretty much go on as it is right now. There'd be winners and losers, of course. Because let's remember that even going back to 2012 or so, the dollar was down at 70. And did any of you know the difference? Did any, were any of you worried about a dollar crash back then? No. You, you probably didn't even notice, other than if you took a trip to Europe, and you're like, damn, everything's expensive. <laughs> but uh, there you go, guys. So when I get this full report done, it's going to have diagrams. It's gonna, I'm actually going to have uh, uh, drawings or graphics of the doom loops and everything. Uh, you guys are going to love it. It's going to really help you better understand how this works and so you can draw your own conclusions. Maybe you completely disagree with me, but at least you're going to have a conclusion that's based on facts, reality, and it's going to be an educated conclusion. So on that note, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. See you in the next video.